This podcast is sponsored by Chargeify. Chargeify provides specialized billing and data management tools to give B2B SaaS companies the competitive edge. Over the past 12 years, Chargeify has partnered with champions in SaaS like SpendSpark, Mailgun, Connect, and EarthClass Mail to streamline their billing processes, build and nurture lasting relationships with customers, and strategically optimize their organizations for long-term growth. Chargeify's innovative software empowers every B2B SaaS company to step into the future of billing. Visit chargeify.com forward slash SaaSdoc to learn more. If you're one of the world's nearly 1 billion spreadsheet users, you're likely familiar with the time-consuming effort that goes into formatting, emailing, and sharing your spreadsheets. That's exactly why Grid is here to help. Grid is a no-code web tool that transforms your important spreadsheet data into compelling visual narratives and interactive web documents. If you use spreadsheets to construct complex growth models, revenue projections, or strategic analysis, Grid will give you your work that wow factor. Grid lets your team interact with your spreadsheet models, compare scenarios, and share them securely in minutes. With Grid, you'll never email another spreadsheet again. Sign up for free at www.grid.is. That's G-R-I-D. I think this unification really points to the chief role of the CMO, and that is you're the storyteller. Like you create the narrative, and it's a narrative that works for your employee brand, it works for prospects, current customers. And so at the end of the day, creativity and great storytelling is something that CMOs have to do. I think we've leaned so much to the left side about conversions and how many campaigns and numbers and dashboards. I think we forget sometimes. And sometimes uh, all CMOs are not good at both sides, left brain and right brain. You know, I definitely, because of my years in marketing automation, I'm much more left brain. And so I have to sup this up myself with an agency or creative people and copywriters and art directors. But I think uh, at the end of the day, uh, the creativity and the storytelling is really central to the role and it unifies the whole company. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the SaaS Revolution Show brought to you by SaaStock the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth, and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today, and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution show. Uh, Henry Shuck, CEO and founder of ZoomInfo. Welcome, Henry. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, great to have you here. We've uh, first time on the podcast. We've had you speak at a couple of SaaStock events in in the last year when we uh, when we went digital um, uh, because of the uh, the pandemics. So really appreciate uh, you participating in those. Some of the uh, you know great sessions. I remember the one at the SaaStock uh, uh, remote in June was uh, was fantastic. Pretty uh, captivated by uh, I guess kind of the knowledge bombs that you were you were dropping there. So looking forward to the uh, the, the conversation uh, today. Um, and um, so, so Henry, um, obviously, I'm introduce you as the, the CEO and co-founder of Zoom Info. But tell us about you as a person. Uh, who is Henry Shuck? Where do you start? I'm a husband, a father, uh, a CEO. Um, I think those three things take up, you know, ninety percent of who I am, and then ten percent is, uh, you know, I'm a friend and colleague and. Um, but the trick in my life is how do I be the best of those first three things? You know, how do I 
be the best husband, the best father, the best CEO, um, and the balancing act to try to figure out how to be in equilibrium across those three things. That's that. That's my everyday struggle. Yeah. So you you, you haven't. I, don't, I, don't, I guess many founders going to empathize with that. Um, are there any kind of tips and tricks there uh, on that where you you can be you know the best or the best that you can be at all of those? Yeah, totally. I think number one, um, I think there's a lot of talk about work life balance. And I think that's a, an often misunderstood term because I think when you hear work-life balance, what most people hear is work less, just work less is what work-life balance means to most people. But it totally ignores the balance part and balance is very important. So, you know, in my life, a couple of the things that I, that I make sure I do every day. So if I'm in town and, you know, you can think of this as a pre-pandemic world, if I'm in town, I never have dinners or drinks or happy hour after work. I go home and I play with my daughter and I don't do anything uh, early, so early in the morning that I can't see my daughter when I'm in town. So I get a chance to play with her and be with my wife in the morning. And in the evening, I'm always back before she goes uh, to bed and I get you know an hour, an hour and 30 minutes to play with her and read books and, and do all of that. Now, I also just recognize that there are going to be times during uh, there, there are going to be times at work where I can't see them in the morning or at night because I'm traveling. Um, and so work is going to pull me into things that I have no control over. And I'm just not going to beat myself up about those things. That's just a natural thing that happens in, in work. But as long as I'm being true to the, Hey, on days that I'm in town, I will always see my, uh, daughter in the morning and the evening, I feel really balanced. And then I don't have that head thrash when I'm traveling, like, oh, you know, I, I didn't get a chance to see uh, Grace and Jessica today. I think more like, okay, this is a, I knew this was going to happen and I've corrected for it and balanced for it by correcting for it on the days that I'm in town. So that's one thing. And I think just finding where that balance is, what are your non-negotiables on both sides of the equation? Uh, is really important. And I know for me, um, you know, I, I'm not like, I don't clock in or clock out, but in my mind, I am running a tally of how many hours I'm in the office contributing to Zoom info. And it is important for me to feel like I'm putting in a real day at the office and doing real work to drive the business forward. Um, and so I can't shortchange that side either because it'll cause all sorts of other imbalances that affect me. So I would just say, take a lot of time to think about balance and what that means for you. And then just make sure you're um, consciously executing against that. How many hours uh, do you put in a, a week? Uh, so as I a do this. I've, I've played this game many times. <laughs> I'm somewhere between 55 and 60 hours a week. And that includes the weekends. Yeah. But the weekends are great. They're like, they don't really feel like work on the weekends because I'm at my own pace. I can go in and out. I can pick like when I'm doing what I'm doing, but kind of 55 to 60 hours where I'm sitting at a desk, I'm in front of a computer and I'm doing Zoom info work. I'm checking my emails 24 hours a day, basically. But when am I actually sitting down and doing like focused work? It's like 55 to 60 hours. 
Okay. And you, and you founded Discover Org, which acquired ZoomInfo and you rebranded to ZoomInfo. Was Discover Org your, the first business that you, you founded? No, it's actually the second business that I founded. This is an often un-talked uh, about part of uh, my business career, but I founded a business when I was right after I graduated college. I, I went to college in Las Vegas and uh, true to form, I founded a nightclub promotions business. Uh, where we drove traffic basically to nightclubs at the uh, MGM Grand uh, in Las Vegas is where we started. And then we ended up with contracts at the MGM Grand and at the Par- Paris and at the Rio, at the Caesars, um, at the Mandalay Bay. Uh, the business ended up having about 35 employees uh, almost overnight and just taught me a lot about, you know, managing people, schedules, negotiating with management, um, which is a really great learning experience for me. We have something in common there um, that obviously we didn't know about each other. Uh, I, I was a nightclub promoter creating my, my own uh, nightclub events uh, when I was probably about 17, 18. And I, I thought after the first one, I'd found my fortune and I wouldn't have to go to university. And that was uh-huh. it. I was going to be an entrepreneur. But then the second didn't do so well. And then the third one flopped. And then I, w- I was in for it for the money, had to borrow some money from my dad and then, I went back to school, but it was the first experience, you know, first awesome. kind of a taste of that then. And um, what can you share? Uh, so actually, tell me a little bit about um, why you founded Discover Org, uh, which obviously then, you, you know, uh, acquired Zoom Info. Like, what was the story there? Why, why did you feel compelled to do this and solve a particular problem? Yeah, so it's a little bit less of a, you know, uh, stroke of genius kind of story. I worked I, when I finished uh, call when I finished my first year in college uh, at UNLV in Las Vegas. I was totally out of money, and um, you know I came from a really middle class uh, family. My I, I was raised by my mom, who worked three jobs to support us. Um, she's a nurse, and when I went off to college, she gave me five thousand dollars, which was like remnants of a life insurance policy that she had uh, been putting money into probably for 10 years. And I took that $5,000, I went to college, I ran out of it after my first year in college and I needed to find a job. So I found a job on the UNLV job board at a company called iProfile that said it did sales intelligence. And I didn't know what that was, but it paid 12 bucks an hour and I needed a job in the summer to pay rent. So I took the job. Um, and it turned out that was a company that was an early entrant into the SaaS world. It was selling an online subscription to a database, uh, annual subscription. It was selling it to technology companies. It was really the precursor to, to discover Oregon Zoom Info. Um, and so I learned how the business worked. We grew it from 300,000 in revenue when I got there in 2002 to uh, just under 5 million in 2006. It sold to private equity. And I left and went to law school. And after my first year in law school, a friend of mine who I had recruited to iProfile called me and said, hey, let's start something that's like iProfile, but doesn't directly compete. And so we started something that basically covered covered a segment of the market that iProfile was not covering. Uh, Business took off, did well. Fast forward eight years from then, we took private equity money. We actually acquired iProfile. it was one. Of, it was our first acquisition in a string of you know nine acquisitions, M and A transactions that we've done to date, um, 
And so, yeah, that's how it started. I worked at a similar company is a short story. Yeah. Okay. And, <laughs> and, um, and tell, uh, like, you, you know, uh, I feel like ho hopefully all of the listeners will know who Zoom, Zoom Info is uh, because they're predominantly SaaS founders. They're in the, in the SaaS space. So you feel like that should be a given. However, sometimes you live in this bubble and you kind of forget that yeah. like, maybe everybody doesn't know all the, all the SaaS companies under the sun and they don't follow it as, like, you, you know, intensely as perhaps uh, I do, uh, you know, running a, a SaaS kind of, you know, conference business. But so what, what can you share um, about in terms of what ZoomInfo does and also like any data, um, you, you know, like revenue, uh, how much you've raised, employees, growth rates, you know, public, private, et cetera. Sure. So, uh, so what ZoomInfo does is it helps sales and marketing organizations identify their next best customer and then connect with them. And we do that through a series of, uh, or through a set of data and technology and insights that we've built. And so the core data asset at Zoom Info is 130 million business professionals across about 100 million different companies that we're using to drive insights from those companies. So which companies are growing, which are shrinking, which are getting funding, which are adding or removing technologies or opening new locations or hiring new executives, um, or who, which ones are in the midst of a cybersecurity project or a human resources project and which ones are doing research on certain topics. And then we marry all of that data and insights to technology that allows our customers to activate that data through their sales development channels, their marketing channels, their CRM channel. And so I have a great set of data on my total addressable market. I'm seeing signals that are coming through on them and I'm instantly activating those through the channels that are most meaningful to me. Um, so the business was founded in 2007. Uh, we've done nine M&A transactions. Today, we're just under 2,000 employees. Uh, we're publicly traded. We went public in, on June 4th, 2020. Technically, we're supposed to go to public in March, March 26th, March 26th of 2020, but the pandemic had different plans for us. So we virtually IPO'd the company in June. Um, we finished the year with uh, 20,000 customers across the globe, uh, grew the business over 40% year over year, did that with 40% plus margins on the business. So we're growing and profitable, uh, which is you know, often not seen in uh, software companies, but valued by Wall Street. Um, and we, before we went public, we had uh, two private equity sponsors, TA Associates, who came in in 2014, and the Carlisle Group, who came in in 2018. Awesome, awesome. Th thanks for sharing that. And see, congrats on the amazing kind of growth and what you've achieved and taking the company public uh, again, like during the pandemic and doing that uh, yeah. virtually. It would have been the anniversary then, the uh, one year anniversary in the next next sort of couple of days. Uh, had, you yeah. gone, had you gone public in Mar on March the 26th? Um, mm. And um, so in terms of like what I want to kind of cover next is like it's a few key lessons from you in that, that early stage of the journey, yep. uh, the zero to one million, uh, then the same kind of questions, one to 10 and the 10 to, to 100. Some of the key things that you've learned that you think would be valuable to kind of share um, in those three different stages. Um, and uh, so may maybe like obviously, well, I think the, the good place to start is zero to one. You know, what were some of the key lessons uh, that you can remember and, and you, you know, that happy to kind of share from that journey of running Zoom? What's the, what's the stage after zero to one, Alex? 
<laughs> What's the next bucket? Oh, sorry, uh, one million to ten million. Yeah, one million to ten million. Yeah. So let me let me give one that's zero to one, and then I'll yeah. give you one that covers both one to you know zero to ten. Okay. Um, so zero to one, I would say maybe one of the most important things to nail is division of responsibilities. Who's responsible for what? Um, so it's you and your co-founders, there's three of them or whatever it is, you have a couple of employees. What are you responsible for? What is everybody else responsible for? What are you, what are the goals across those different sets of responsibilities? That's really important to understand. Otherwise, you're just going to be stepping on each other's toes all the time. And one person is going to think that they could do it better than the other person. And the other person is going to think they can do it better than the other person. So getting division of responsibilities down right up front, I think is really important. I would also say name a CEO. You know, somebody's got to be the person who's the CEO of the company. And so make sure you name that person. Um, and then the, the advice that I have from zero to you know, probably 15 is um, if you're a founder of the company, and especially if you're the CEO, you should be in front of customers, probably no less than 50% of your day. And so you should be, I was a quota carrying sales rep at the, at discover org or uh, for the first, you know, call it six, six years. Um, I took demos. I was in the regular lead routing. I uh, took the calls from uh, demo to close. And that experience is so valuable, especially today in a company of this size, because I know what our sales reps are going through on calls. I know what the buyers are going to ask. I know what they're going to be interested in. I know what they're not going to be interested in. When we build product, I know what our buyers care about and don't care about because I've sat on hundreds, you know, thousands of meetings with our customers where I've presented a number of our different solutions and seen their reactions to it. I know how a sales process works. You know, I know how long it takes. I know the different players who come in. Um, it's just, and then I understand product market fit better than anybody else because I was in that, I was in that chair talking to those customers and then I've built upon that experience with conversations with investors and new conversations with bigger customers and understanding the market and the, the competitive landscape. But the basis of experience being on the front lines that way, you just can't get it in any other way. It doesn't matter how many chorus or gong calls you listen to. It doesn't matter how many pipeline reviews you sit through. The experience of sitting in front of the customer and having them tell you at times that your product is a piece of junk and at times your product is amazing and completely changing how they go to market, you just can't beat that experience. And so don't shortchange yourself from it. And I talk to founders all the time. I'm not a sales guy. I'm not a market, but I'm a product guy. You just can't be good at anything else if you're a CEO and you're not in front of the customer that often, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah, <laughs> no, uh, it's, it's, it's a great opinion, interesting one. Um, like I, I think we commonly kind of hear that uh, I guess whether in SaaS or just being a founder that the, the the founder the CEO should lead sales you know maybe up to the first million in revenue or for the first couple of years it's what I kind of commonly hear probably the first time I've heard on the podcast you know up to you know fifty percent of your time up to fifteen million in revenue but obviously you're kind of you know paid off 
you know, extremely well uh, uh, for Zoom Info. So um, uh, being a subject matter expert and how your company goes to market is invaluable. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And what about 10 million to 100 million? Um, You you know, obviously things kind of change, but once you're at that 10 million revenue point, you kind of feel you shouldn't certainly fail at that point. Maybe a few do, but not many do. So you're on that kind of path. And how do we get to 100 million? How do we do it quickly? Like, you you know, what was Info's way? So 10 million to 100 million, I would say, are kind of about two things. One is hiring, which is not like everybody's going to tell you that. Like hiring the right people is incredibly important from 10 to 100 million. You make a bad hire, it puts you back a year, especially in a senior senior role, literally a year. And that's like in a, in a SaaS company's life, isn't it? Like close to an eternity sometimes. Um, so, but what does that actually mean? Um, I think what it actually means is you have to be really comfortable with taking a really long time to make your hires. And so um, you have to interview a lot. You have to meet a lot of people. You can't just like meet three people for your, you know, your next head of marketing and say, okay, well, I like this person better than the other two. You should be meeting, you know, in my opinion, at least a dozen people. And then you have to be really comfortable with saying, you know, all those 12 people I met, none of them are good enough for this role. And so I'm going to keep on searching and I'm going to keep on searching. And so I think it's really important to feel comfortable taking your time on hiring from 10 to 100 million because getting getting it wrong is, you know, it really sets your company back. Um, So that's one thing. And then the second thing I would say is really understanding the rhythm of your business and what activities lead to what outcomes and then tracking and metricing those activities and then delivering that to the business to understand, you know, well, I'm behind this week over here, which means I'm going to pay for it over here. I'm ahead this week over here. What am I doing to get ahead there? And can I do more of it? Um, you know, I'm a behind over here. And so I'm going to pay for it in three months because I understand that the rhythm of the business tells me if I'm behind here, I'm going to be behind there. And I think a big important hire in that, um, in that uh, transformation is really hiring a great chief financial officer. And like, before you, you know, stop listening to the rest of the podcast, um, I'll tell you that I was very resistant to this hire. Um, I was like, yeah, I've got a, I've got a controller. They do the books, you know, day, you know, accounting comes in, they get it audited. That's what I, that's what a CFO does. And uh, my partners at TA Associates, worked really hard to tell me like, look, that's not what a CFO does. That's part of their organization, but your CFO should be a strategic business partner and helping you understand the business and the metrics that matter. And then helping you run the business through those metrics. And if you want to get to a hundred million dollars, that is an investment you have to make. You have to under no business doing $100 million of ARR is not running a metrics-driven organization, um, at least in key parts of the organization. And so having a CFO that can help you see the rhythm of the business, can help you understand it, and can flag issues across the business for all of the business stakeholders uh, is really important. And roughly, do you remember like what ARR you were when you, yeah. you hired the, the CFO? I was about $30 million of ARR. 30 million. Okay. Um, uh, and then 
from that 30 million, how long did it take you to get to 100? Um, so we hired uh, our CFO would have been late 2014, call it right at the beginning of 2015. And then we got to 100 million of ARR in, uh, or call it 2018, three years later. Okay, uh, cool. Thanks it's a little sharing. tricky because we did yeah. an acquisition. So technically we got there in August of 2017 because the acquisition took us from about 80 million of ARR to uh, you know, $120 million of ARR. But had we played out the rest of the year, it would have been early, uh, early 2018 that we would have gotten to $100 million organically. Okay. And you, and you, acquired, you acquired Zoom Info, but then rebranded Discoverable to Zoom Info. What, uh, what was the process, thought process around that? Yeah, so uh, an interesting process um, because, uh, you know, I had a board who had seen like this great success of Discover Oregon, like we're tied not so much to the name being a good name, but to the brand being a brand they liked being associated with. Um, and, you know, fundamentally, Discover Oregon is not that good of a name. Like it got messed up more often than it did, than it got right. People would call it Discovery, just Discovery, Discover discover.org, discovery.org. Like you, you were much more likely to have someone mess the name up than to get the name right. And we had like talked about for years, like, you know, if you change the name, what would you change it to? Um, and then we bought, then we acquired Zoom Info and um, that presented a really great opportunity to understand whether making the name change to Zoom Info made sense. And so we went out, we actually commissioned a study to go understand the perceptions of the different brands in the, in the marketplace. And what we found was that uh, Zoom Info was, was three times more well-known to sales and marketing buyers than the Discover Org brand was. And part of that is just because what had happened was with the acquisition of Zoom Info, Discover Org went from selling primarily to people who sold into the IT and marketing departments of companies. We were making a shift with the Zoom Info acquisition to really selling to anybody who sold to another business. And so today we have companies, we have a, a pecan exporter in Georgia, a pallet manufacturer in Mississippi, a tent maker in Michigan, and really like any business you can imagine that sells to another business. And that's like most businesses uh, are customers of ours. And so in that much larger total addressable market, the Zoom Info brand was a lot more well-known. Um, and so we wanted to leverage the investments they had made for years in establishing that brand. Um, and so it just meant I had to get rid of the Discover Org name, which was a lot uh, less difficult than you would imagine. But there was this moment in a board meeting where we're having this discussion. So it's our full board meetings right after the Zoom Info acquisition. We're talking about this. Um, and our, a couple of our board members were like, no, like people really respect the Discover Org name. It's really well known. I wouldn't discount that. And, uh, and then one of our other board members who wanted to change the name said, well, why don't you just do something in an interim uh, period where you call it Zoom Info powered by Discover Org. And that was like the little compromise you needed to get everybody okay with it. And I knew at the time, like we would do that for a year and then drop the powered by Discover Org. But that sort of little tweak for a year 
made everybody get on board with changing the name. And, and but can I see on your your gilet at the moment? This is old. It is yeah, old. powered by Discover Org. Yeah. Yeah, the new ones don't say powered by Discover Org anymore. Okay, very, very good. Which now I've gotten really um, I've gotten really handsy with my stuff that says Discover Org because I'm never going to make another Discover Org vest yeah. or jacket. So I had a friend who came over the other night and he was wearing a Discover Org jacket. And I, where did you get that? That you gave it to me. Two years ago, give it back to me. I'll give you my Zoom <laughs> info jacket. So I took my jacket off. I gave him my Zoom info jacket. I took his Discover Org jacket because you know, I'll make another Zoom info jacket. I've got plenty of those, but I'll never make yeah. another Discover Org one. Very cool. And so last year you took the company public. <clears throat> and as you said, it, it was supposed to be March the 26th, but the pandemic delayed it slightly. <clears throat> what did the business look like uh, at the point of you taking it public? Um, you know, why did you go public then? Uh, and w- w- was there a kind of thought, well, like because of the pandemic and the fear and uncertainty that was happening in the world at that point that maybe we just delay it until like this is over? Yeah. Um, yeah. So we had kind of started a process of exploring the idea of going public in kind of June of 2019. So we made the acquisition of Zoom Info in February, started putting the companies together. And then we said, look, the combined company has all of the um, all of the attributes to be a really successful publicly traded entity. Let's go out and see what public equity investors think about that. So not unlike any fundraising motion, um, we went out and ran what was called a non-deal roadshow or a testing the waters, where you go to New York, San Francisco, Chicago, and Boston. And you go meet with a bunch of public equity investors. You tell them your, the story of uh, Discover Org and Zoom Info and the metrics of the business. And you see if they would be interested in being investors in this business if it was publicly traded. Um, and you go with the different investment banks. And so we started doing that kind of in late uh, or, or in the second half of 20, uh, 2019. And the response was overwhelmingly positive. Um, People like the business, they like the, me- the metrics of the business, they like the market we're playing in, they viewed it as a large total addressable market. And so we had a lot of momentum to go public. And so we pinned the date in March 26th, um, started, you know, all of the, you're writing the S1 and getting uh, new auditors and hiring a law firm and uh, continuing to do market checks and refining the story. And so um, when we turned the corner in March, it was clear you couldn't go public in the market. At that point, you know, everybody knew what was happening from coronavirus perspective. And there's this one, uh, there's this thing called the VIX, which is called the volatility index that we were following because if you had a volatility index, like kind of less than 25, 30, you could feel comfortable going public. And at this point, it was like in the 70s. And so there just wasn't any, there was no reality in going public in March. And so we did say like, let's just take a step back and reevaluate this whole thing. And so we did, and we stopped talking about the IPO. We got through April and the business actually performed pretty well through April. And so uh, we said, okay, well, we got through April, things went well. Is it possible to IPO in June? And we were, um, we were the first technology company to go public from when the pandemic hit uh, 
from when the pandemic hit. There was one, and really the second company to go public, Warner Music, went public the day before we went public. Um, on June, they went public on June 3rd. So um, because the business performed, we went back out to investors. They felt really good about how the business had performed through April um, and what our prospects looked like for the rest of the year. We rebuilt our forecast and gave new guidance for the remaining uh, half of the year. And the investors were still excited about us going public. So we launched virtually on June 4th. Which, uh, I mean, launching virtually, uh, obviously, I mean, it's a great moment becoming a public company, not that I've ever done it, but w- was there any kind of, I don't know, regret about launching virtually? Totally. Not being that, yeah. I am a human, Alex. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> you know, you build this company in like the Super Bowl moment of, yeah. uh, of, go- of, of your business, of what's in your mind around running a business is like being at the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ and hitting the button, ringing the bell and being with all the people who helped you build the company. And we had 60 people we were going to take to New York. We had planned the hotels, the dinner the night before, the dinner the night after. It was going to be this awesome celebratory moment. And um, and you just missed all that. So the truth of the matter is I had no control over it. Right. Like I can't I did hold out as long as I could. And I made the Nasdaq pretty uncomfortable being like, well, could I still come? Are you sure I can't come still to New York? And ultimately, it just wasn't safe at the time to to make the trip out to New York. It wouldn't feel the same anyways. Um, And so I IPO'd. And so, you know, the 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 rose colored glasses, I IPO'd from my den in my office or from my den at my house in Vancouver, Washington. I did my Kramer interview from my house. And so now that room has a very special feeling to me. It was like, it is basically the, the room where you press the button. Um, and so, yeah, you do, you do. Uh, I did miss that, but, um, but I certainly got a very unique story in exchange. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. And, uh, and, and congrats again. And, uh, um, well, I, I, going public, uh, being a public CEO, obviously there, there's some different things and behaviors that perhaps that, that need to be taken into consideration. Um, but would you say that there, there are any differences between private company, Henry Shuck, and public company, uh, Henry Shuck? Yeah, like anybody who's running a public company and ran a private company before running a public company will tell you like that when, when that switch to public it, the, the, the series of like new pressures and stressors and relationships you have to manage when you go public, it's just, it's just a lot more um, than when you were private. And, you know, like uh, if you've, you've watched Bambi the, or you've looked at a baby deer video ever where they just kind of can't walk at first. They just keep trying to get on their feet and they slip and they fall down and they keep trying to get on their feet and they slip and they fall down. I probably felt like that for the first, I don't know, three, four months post going public. And I just kind of kept telling myself like, yeah, it's super uncomfortable right now and really different, but it's going to feel normal soon. You just got to figure out your rhythm. You just don't have it yet because now I've got this new set of investors so instead of having two investors, you know, technically I have 
thousands of investors, but I, but I really have like two dozen more large institutional public equity investors. We have 16 analysts who cover Zoom info. They all have conferences that they want you to go to and talk to their, you know, their set of investors. So they're just like the, the, you, you have a much bigger constituency to manage than you did in a private company. And in a private company, I know my board. I have Carlisle and TA on it. They know me very well. We have a long operating history together. They know my family. I've gone to their weddings. I've been to their homes. And so you feel like, you know, that you have a strong relationship there. And then all of a sudden you're public and I've got, you know, these 24 other large institutional holders of Zoom Info. And I really don't have a relationship with them on day one. I've met with them, you know, a couple of times, once in person, then the rest virtually. Um, and so really managing those relationships post IPO is just a bigger, um, it's a bigger task. And then everything is public. Everything is in the public eye. So, you know, you, you, you screw something up when you're private and you go to your board and you tell them like, ah, you know, I thought we turned this around faster, but we didn't like that doesn't work when you're a public company, you make commitments and like, you might as well sign those in blood. Like you are obligated to live up to the commitments that you tell the market and the analysts and your investors. And there's very little room for error. So feel really good about your ability to forecast and execute against those forecasts um, and product forecasts before you go public. Okay, definitely. Good, good, good advice there. Now, conscious of your time, so th- these next questions are just going to be a bit more rapid fire, Henry. Uh, so if you're, you're ready to go. Uh, what has helped you be a successful CEO? Uh, unwavering support from my wife. Um, how many, oh, well, we've already covered how many hours you work a week. We said sort of like roughly 60 or so, uh, could be a bit more. Um, how much sleep and exercise do you get each week? Um, I get, you know, I sleep seven to eight hours a night and I exercise six times a week. Okay. Very good. Six times a week. Very good. Um, and, and, and by the way, I exercise now for my mind and my, like the way I feel and, and not anymore for the vanity reasons, which I think I exercised for 20 some odd years for. Um, but most recently I just feel better in my skin after exercising every day. Awesome. Awesome. Likewise. So favorite business book? Um, the Outsiders. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, best advice you've ever received? Oh, um, I assume at some point in elementary school, somebody told me I could do anything I wanted to. And I believed it. Good. Um, and then if you, from what you know now, uh, if you could go back to speak to yourself when you're starting out, would you say do anything differently uh, to the, the young Henry Shop? No, it's hard. No, there's pain along the way, right? But it's hard to look back on the success we've had and try to change any of it. It was all good. Good stuff. Uh, where can people find you online, Henry? So you can find me um, on Twitter. I'm Henry L. Shuck, S-C-H-U-C-K. You can find me on LinkedIn. It's just LinkedIn backslash H-Shuck, H-S-C-H-U-C-K. Or you can email me. I'm just henry.shuck at zoominfo.com. And if you're a Zoom Info user, you'll have access to that and my cell phone number. Awesome. Great stuff.
Henry, thanks so much for taking your time out to share with the SaaS community on the SaaS Revolution show. Fantastic uh, conversation. Really enjoyed speaking with you. Um, and uh, yeah, look forward to doing it again at, at some point in the future. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Alex. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Henry. Talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SaaS Doc conferences around the world.